coming up in this edition, college football playoff madness. Florida State get the shaft. We already see the snubbing before. Is Ryan Day in trouble at Ohio State? Look up by the battle coach. Maybe looking at for sale signs in his front yard. Justice for James Madison. Look at how the Duke got a little bit of love from the NCAA. The Corey Perry situation is just bad. We'll explain the whole uh, imagined situation with the Blackhawks or former Blackhawks player. Arizona gets their turn at the top of the rankings. How long do they last? Fluid situation in college basketball. And have the skins been greased for the Lakers to win the NBA in season turn? Take a look at week 14. We don't even want to talk about what happened last week with the picks. Fat dap, head slap, and a final word from Wood. It's a full show this week. Got a lot of ground to cover. Support your seatbelts. Learning crash helmets. <laughs> I did that backward. It's sports on the Hoodwood. Let's go. He already has his team he's rooting for, but he'll root for anything that's got a dog in it. So I have no dog in the fight since my Bearcats have long been eliminated from any kind of talk of college football playoff. I'm your man, KJ Green, welcoming you back to another edition. And like I said last week, things went sideways. We're going to do better this week. I promise you that. Uh, we got a full show. So let's get started. Finally, there are four. Four teams looking to wear the national championship crown. You have Michigan, you have Washington, winners of the Big Ten and Pac-12 respectively. No question, both of those teams well-deserving of their rightful places in the college football playoff, seeded one and two respectively. Michigan with an absolute evisceration of Iowa, an overmatched Iowa team in the Big Ten championship on the second and the Washington Huskies winning a thrilling game over the Oregon Ducks in the Pac-12 Championship in Las Vegas. Did Michael Penix Jr. win the Heisman with that performance? Who knows, but that's another topic. When you get to three and four, then you start getting a little bit of controversy. Texas wins the, the Big 12 Championship. You know, take the crown as they're on their way out the door to the SEC. No big deal. Many people thought, okay, they may be the best one-loss team that are that is left here. One of the teams that are one-loss team but lost to Texas is Alabama. The Crimson Tide upsetting unbeaten Georgia in Atlanta, and Nick Saban sitting back laughing like he's got Georgia's number. He's got a lot of a number one team crossing Alabama is dangerous. You have to worry that Nick Saban always has his team prepared in December to win titles. 
So when the CFP decided on in their little office in Grapevine, Texas, or wherever they're holed up in Texas, that they were going to pick the two, the four teams, Michigan and Washington were no-brainers. Unbeaten, conference champs, no, no, real, no real carpet. Shout out Ohio State, you've got no place here. Go away. Three and four, many people thought Florida State, as an unbeaten ACC champ, deserved a place at the table. Unbeaten, power conference. They had basically knocked off everybody that you put in front of them. But when Jordan, uh, uh, Jordan Travis hurt his leg with a game to go, many people thought, is this the same Florida State team? Can they legitimately say that they are a full intact squad? They struggle with, with Florida in, the, in their annual rivalry, in-state rivalry game. They held Louisville to six points, but they looked ragged on offense. And many people thought, okay, you're undefeated, but are you really the power team that you're supposed to be? I thought Florida State's defense really stepped up. Louisville has a great offense, but they also have a lot of blemishes. So beating Louisville wasn't the kind of sexy win that the CFP wanted, not in comparison to Alabama knocking off Georgia. So you have Texas at three, Alabama at four, Florida State locked out. And there are a lot of sore politicians that want a piece of this action now. They want to Florida State was done wrong. We want to sue the, the, the college football playoff and sue the NCAA. What sense does that make? I mean, really. Florida State does have a bit of a beef, if you will. They went undefeated, won the ACC. They didn't win it in dominating fashion, but they won. And they got locked out. Do they have legitimate beef? Of course. Did I think that Alabama deserved to be in? No. Alabama is a flawed team. And many people think, well, they're, they're rising up. They're getting good at the right time. I still don't think that Alabama was deserving of a playoff spot. But. Beating Georgia, they thought, gave them the street cred to get in. I thought that was an eliminator game. That Georgia was safe. And you have honks like Paul Feinbaum. The CFP is illegitimate if there's an SEC representative. Why? Why is it that the SEC feels that they are so much better than everybody else? I mean, yeah, you have great teams like Georgia. And most often, more often than not, Alabama. And you have your occasional wild cards that jump in there, like an Alabama or an S. I'm not making pardon, like an Auburn or an LSU. But those, that's four teams. Now, they're going to get a little deeper with the additions of Texas and Oklahoma in the SEC next year. But what makes people think that the SEC is supposed to be this all encompassing, all dominant conference? Now, with the playoffs being expanded to 12 teams next year, did the SEC think, oh, we, we've got four teams in there on lock? What makes them think that they deserve that many spots? I didn't think they deserve one this year. Now, 
We'll get to the previews of the two team, the two games, the national semifinals, if you will, that are being played on New Year's Day. But that's a couple of weeks down the road. We'll get into those games. But the optics, did Florida State get the shaft? I think they got the shaft, but they have no recourse. What's a lawsuit going to prove? What are they going to do? File a lawsuit to keep the CFP from being played? Force Florida State to be put in at whose expense? You do it against Alabama, then you're going to have some idiot like Tommy Tuberville. And yes, I call him an idiot because I don't like him. But then you'll have some idiot like Tommy Tuberville wanting to throw a lawsuit there. What do you do? Put Texas out? You, yeah, you're really going to have Texas getting up in arms about this. It's a sticky situation and further proving that a 12-team playoff is necessary. Next year is going to be gravy because you're going to be focusing on the power conference champions and the eight wild cards that will get in, which will include a group of five. And you're talking about undefeated teams. Why isn't Liberty getting a fair shot? In a 12-team playoff, they would get a fair shot. They'll probably have to play on the road in the first round, but they would get a shot. And that's all you want to see is the best teams play it, slug it out on the field. Teams like, like Florida State that are unbeaten and will not get a fair shake. They're going to play in an orange bowl. But teams like this aren't going to get a fair shake. And in this scenario and situation, you got to kind of take it with a grain of salt. Shrug your shoulders. UCF went unbeaten in 2017. They didn't get a, a, a sniff at the playoffs. But who was advocating for them? No one. It's a messed up situation, but what you gonna do? Now, some things just don't make any sense to me. Now, Ryan Day is the coach of Ohio State. Very good coach, if I may say so. I'm not one to give platitudes to Ohio State on most things because it's very well known here in the Hoodwood that I'm not a big Ohio State fan. But game recognizes game. And Ryan Day is a very, very good coach. 56-7 and seven in his career. He's been coached. Of Ohio State since taking over. He was an interim in 2018 when Urban Meyer was in all sorts of trouble. Then he took over in 2019 full-time when Urban Meyer retired. Whatever. But then he basically stepped in the breach of one of the toughest jobs in sports, I think. Being the Ohio State head coach, unless you're winning national championships on a regular basis or contending for national championships, you're going to be in a whole world of hurt. Ask Earl Bruce. Ask John Cooper. Those are coaches who had to live under the enormous shadow of Woody Hayes. Earl Bruce, particularly. The Buckeyes contended for national titles, but seemed to always fall short. Then came Jim Trestle. Jim Trestle talked a big game, and Ohio State won a national championship in 2002. He got himself into trouble. Ohio State got himself on probation. And then after a brief year with Luke Fickle as an interim coach, the St. Urban, I'm sorry, Urban Meyer 
decided to take over the Ohio State reigns after his quote-unquote retirement from Florida. I'm not going to get into the whole, whole uh, uh, semantics on that, but under Meyer, the Buckeyes won a national championship in 2015. When Meyer retired, allegedly, to take a two, and eventually ended up going to the pros, which was a disaster, Ryan Day stepped into the breach. And like I said, Day has been very good. 56-7 and seven as head coach of the Buckeyes. An incredible 39-3 and three in the Big Ten. 39-3! and three. It's one small problem. One, two, three losses have all been to Michigan. And there is nothing that will get a Buckeyes fans hackles up quicker than losing to, as they like to refer to it, that team up north. Michigan has beaten Ohio State each of the last three years. Smacking them around in 2021 in Ann Arbor, just and then utterly just embarrassing them. 45 to 23 at home in the sainted horseshoe. And then losing again in, after, during, after the 2023 season. The problem with teams like Ohio State who feel that a national championship, or in this case, CFP births, are a national birthright. If they are not playing for national titles, something's wrong. If they are not in the conversation for the national title, something's wrong. Something's wrong with the coach. Ryan Day isn't doing what Ohio State fans think he should be doing, which is winning all the time. Ohio State is a very, very good football team. I will not deny that as much as it pains me to do so. The problem is, is the utterly unrealistic expectations that have been foisted on coaches. Now, Ryan Day got Ohio State to the national championship once. They got smoked by Alabama, which is no real shit. was no real shame. A lot of teams get smoked by Alabama. My Bearcats got smoked by Alabama in the, in the CFP playoffs in 21. Oh, well. The problem is, is that you're getting there and you're not at least taking a chip once in a while. Day is 1-3 in the CFP. Losing an epic game to Georgia last year on New Year's Eve, there should be no shame in that. The problem is, it's a loss. Ohio State fans can't conceive losing Somebody's going to have to lose the game sooner or later. And the problem is, is they, they took beating Michigan for granted so much that when Michigan did win, it was a cause for alarm. Losing to them twice is cataclysmic. Losing three times in a row? Oh, Lord. Snuffy put it best. House for sale? Rumors of there were for sale signs planted in Ryan Day's front yard after they got back from Ann Arbor, after losing to Michigan. It's a problem that Buckeye fans say that would you wish you had that kind of problem? A coach who goes 57-9 and wins all the time? You see how the coach that went pretty good himself over the last five years, then went off to, uh, to greener pastures. 
The problem with a coach like Day is he's got nowhere to go but the pros or another top-tier team. And there are not a lot of top-tier teams of the caliber of Ohio State. And that's a problem. Now, of course, the noisy alumni and their very brain fan base are going to lean on Ryan Day if he does anything better, anything worse than 12-0 next year. Losses are unacceptable. Last year, Ohio State lost two games in 22. They lost to Oregon and they lost to Michigan. And it was unthinkable that they lost to Oregon at home. They lost two times at home, which rarely happens. Is it unrealistic expectations about Ryan Day? Or is it unrealistic expectations of Ohio State's football team in general? 56-7 is nothing to sneeze at. 39-3 in conference is incredible. But to Ohio State, it's never good enough. Let's take a timeout, come back, and look at justice. James Madison, the little team that we campaigned for in the Hoodwood, gets a shot at a bowl game. Sports in the Hoodwood continues after this. Is today your last day on Earth because you are being deployed to space tomorrow? Have you just turned 18 and you're ready to get out of your parents' house? Has your granddaughter gotten her boyfriend pregnant? Whatever your reason, you need us at gottagetmarriednow.com. We specialize in last-minute weddings. Active duty, military veterans and retired discounts are available. Visit us at gottagetmarriednow.com. You are back in the Hoodwood. My name is KJ Green, and I'm all about justice. Two weeks ago, I campaigned right here on this very podcast for James Madison and Jacksonville State, two deserving teams to get their shot. I'm all about justice for the little guy. Liberty, the best team with a group of five, headed to the Fiesta Bowl. Love it. Love it. It's, it's good to see these smaller schools get their shot, get their day in the sun. Now, Liberty, well-deserving, a, a damn good team in their own right, being 11-1, headed to the Fiesta Bowl, the best team in the group of five. They're nationally ranked. They deserve the honor. No one's questioning that they should be in the playoff. I, I beg your pardon. They're undefeated. What did I say? They're undefeated. But you also have teams like James Madison and Jacksonville State, whom I highlighted on this very show a couple of weeks ago. But neither one of these teams were eligible to be in bowl games because it was their first year in the FBS status. The NCAA puts a two-year restriction on teams to be eligible for bowls. I still don't know why they do that. It makes no sense. 
if they're good enough to make the transition from FCS to FBS, and they're good enough and they're winning games against Division I competition, why shouldn't they be able to go bowl? Now, of course, them be, there being 41 bowls, 41 bowls, you have a, a dearth of eligible teams. To be bowl eligible, you have to be at least 500 in your regular season. If you go, if you go to Hawaii, you're allowed to be, you play 13 games. And if you're six and seven, you're allowed to be eligible for a bowl. The problem is there wasn't enough eligible bowl teams out of the hundred and some odd Division I schools that played, only 40 of them qualified. So there were spaces that were left. I shouldn't say 40, there were eight, there were um, there were 40 games that had the full complement. So there were spaces. So the NCAA grudgingly was like Give them a bowl bid. They, they, whatever they're eligible for their bowl, they're bowl eligible. Both James Madison and Jacksonville State, and ironically, there still were uh, there was still another open spot. They got filled by the highest ranking team by academics, which turned out to be Minnesota at five and seven. So they're going to a bowl. But Jacksonville State, not they're not in Jacksonville, Florida. They're in Jacksonville, Alabama. We just detailed that before. They're playing the Arnell Carriers New Orleans Bowl on December 16th against Louisiana. Kind of a home game. The uh, <laughs> Jacksonville State playing against the Raging Cajuns. And it's a short run from Jacksonville, Alabama to New Orleans. I mean, it's not that far. And you're playing against Louisiana, which is almost a home game. The University of Louisiana is in Lafayette, not New Orleans. But still, it's pretty much a home game for Louisiana. But still, Jacksonville State gets its shot in its first year of uh, being in, in FBS. Congratulations to them. James Madison will take on Air Force in the Lockheed Martin Air Forces Bowl. I beg your pardon, Armed Forces Bowl. I said Air Forces Bowl. They're playing Air Force. Try that again. James Madison is taking on Air Force in the Lockheed Martin Armed Forces Bowl. That's going to be in Fort Worth, Texas, just a couple days before Christmas. Both of these teams, both Jacksonville State and James Madison, I'm surprised they didn't put them in a bowl against one another just to kind of shoo them off. But both of these teams, well-deserving. And I think, and I keep saying, justice for the little guy. The Hoodwood likes to see the little guy come up and not necessarily get their comeuppance, but at least get their day in the sun. Bully for the Dukes and the Bulldogs. No, <laughs> I almost messed that up. Bully for the Dukes, bully for the Gamecocks, not South Carolina, but Jacksonville State. Two deserving teams that'll get their day on the national spotlight in the sun. Snuffy asks a real good question. Who's number one now? Well, in, in regard to the NCAA tournament, We'll figure that out in March. But the rankings, which have been out since the preseason, right now have Arizona as number one. In the AP Top 25, as of this taping, they have 59 of the 62 possible votes. It makes them a pretty consensus number one. In the coaches poll, they have 26 of the 32 number one votes. 
Wildcats are 7-0, and right now look to be one of the stronger teams in the NCAA field. Hot on their heels are teams like Houston and Kansas, Houston unbeaten, and the Kansas Jayhawks, who have one loss. Now have fallen from the ranks, they, Kansas was the preseason number one, Purdue had its turn in the blender and fell out. Teams like UConn have contended for the number one slot, but fall on the wayside. And then you also have teams like Baylor, Colorado State, BYU, who are unbeaten. Well, some blue bloods like Kentucky have fallen by the wayside. They're 6-2. Duke has fallen all the way to 22nd, being as high as second in the preseason poll. Now, Arizona right now has the King of the Mountain title. But it's December. Does anyone really care about the rankings right now? Is the, Are they really something to really watch out for? You know, it's more of a, a gauge and a barometer. I've always said rankings really don't mean anything until you get to about January or February. I don't think that they should, they should have a preseason poll and then not take another poll till after New Year's because you shake out all the non-cons and all the, the cookie games the teams have, and then you shake up the polls. Shake them up big time. Now, you do have some ranked teams that have already taken pratfall. San Diego State going to uh, Grand Canyon and taking an embarrassing loss. And then you also have teams like James Madison. There's those Dukes again. They're ranked 24th in the country in the uh, coaches poll. But, and they're, they're as high as 18 in the writers' poll. But, do rankings mean anything right now? I mean, I remember when Cincinnati had a, a fabulous team led by soon-to-be number one draft pick, Kenyon Martin. They were the preseason number one. They played about four or five games, beat a really good North Carolina team in Chicago. They went home, took on Xavier at the old Cincinnati Gardens, and lost. I remember Andy Mack Williams, who was the uh, the play-by-play -play guy for Xavier, saying, "Say Cincinnati, number one in the country, but number two in this city. It's like, shut up, man. Nobody wants to hear it. But UC took a loss. They fell from the top rank for a little bit. They fell down, I think, to two or three. But they reascended to the number one slot, which they held to the end of the regular season before unfortunate circumstances kept them from being the top seed in the tournament. That being said, the top rankings, or the rankings in general, I don't think mean a lot until after the first of the year. And even then, they're not so much a barometer of how a team is playing, but more or less a popularity contest. And you have the continual blue bloods, like I said, your Dukes, your Kentuckys, your Arizonas, your, your teams that are accustomed to starting out high in the rankings because they're a name. Which makes it harder for teams like a James Madison, a Florida Atlantic, a Creighton. Um, some of these teams that you normally don't see in the top 25 that have to fight their way through a lot of the chaff, a lot of the rumorization. Is this a good team? Is this a for real team? But then you have teams like Alabama, Mississippi State, uh, again, I said I refer to Kentucky or Texas A&M that start out ranked, not necessarily top five ranked like Kentucky or Duke, and then their targets and they fall and people say, 
Well, they're not as good as we said they were. Why are they that good to begin with? Why are they ranked that high to begin with? Arizona, it's their turn in the blender. At the king of the mountain. Best in the country. Let's see if somebody can knock them off. They'll get knocked off. They'll take a loss. And then you'll have another team ready to, to step in the breach after them. Could it be Houston? Could it be Kansas again? Who knows? But the real number one ain't going to be decided until the Nets get cut down at the end of March, early April. Is the fix in? Seriously. Why does it just seem that the things are just running just so perfect for the Lakers and the Celtics to meet in Vegas this coming weekend? Now, as I tape this segment, the Lakers are going to be playing the Pellies and the Bucks are going to be playing the Celtics in the semifinals in Vegas. If it turns out one or both of these teams don't make it, or do make it, then I just erase the the, the, uh, the segment tape something else. But, taping this in contingency, and I'm going to cut this and edit this right away. But I'm taping this in contingency that the Lakers and the Celtics both make it, or are going to make it. Anyway, the Lakers suddenly have gotten to be this very good team that are winning games just in time to get to Vegas. Hmm. And what team would be facing them in Vegas in the final? The Boston Celtics. Hmm. You get the Lakers. You get the Celtics. It's not the finals. But it's the finals of a tournament that Adam Silver has created to drum up interest in a midseason tournament, which most people haven't been paying attention to. Wouldn't it be just funny, the Lakers and the Celtics in the finals on ABC on a Saturday night opposite of the Heisman Trophy presentation. Now, both ABC and ESPN are both showing their respective uh, programs, so it's one against the other. But don't you think Adam Silver wants to draw attention to his sport with the with the NFL not quite jumping in on the Saturday the docket yet. You got this open Saturday where all eyes can be on the NBA trying to. And what better two teams to put in the national spotlight than the two most storied franchises in NBA history? Not the defending champion Nuggets. Not the not a not a tough team like the Milwaukee Bucks with the Greek Freak and Damon Lillard. No, you want the Lakers and the Celtics, the two names that everyone knows. Ask the casual basketball fan about the Lakers and the Celtics. They know Magic, Bird, Shaq, uh, uh, Kevin Garnett, uh, Ray Allen, uh, Kobe. The, the names roll off the tongue of those great names from that story, those storied franchises. And for them to play head-to-head, in a game that technically doesn't mean anything to the standings because it's an 83rd game and it won't mean anything to wins or losses, but it's not in LA, it's not in Boston, it's in Vegas. It's on a neutral site where you can get all eyes watching this tournament or watching the culmination of this tournament. Come on now. 
Let's be serious. Let's let, let's keep it a buck, like the kids say. This is a shameless attempt by the NBA to garner ratings, to get eyes on their product before most people start watching the NBA. Because most people don't start watching the NBA till Christmas or after. I know a lot of people don't start paying attention to the, to the NBA till the All-Star break. And that's two-thirds away in the season. Is the fix in for the Lakers and the Celtics to get to the finals? I think the fix is in at least for the Lakers to get to the this, uh, in-season tournament finals. And it would not shock me to see the Celtics get to this finals too. It's a dream scenario. The NBA is... <laughs> if the NBA tries to be ingenious and go, well, it's, a, it's an in-season tournament. It's a, but it's funny that some of the stronger teams got bounced or didn't make it. Timberwolves of 15-4 don't even get to the, to, to the quarterfinals. The defending champ, Nuggets, don't even make it in. Other tough and glamorous teams like the Sixers and the Heat and the Bucks. Well, the Bucks, the Bucks are playing the Celtics, so that's neither here nor there. But still, is the fix in? I think it is. And people laugh at me and go, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. You do not was I conspiracy theorist when I talked about Michael Jordan being suspended for a year? People say I'm crazy, but there's more and more evidence coming out to that end. He's never going to admit it. Of course not. But, uh-uh-uh, there's issues there, and people think I'm crazy. The fix is in. Believe that. Time out. Come back with week 14 of the NFL season picks. Last year, last week was an absolute disaster, and I am bound and determined to get better. Sports from the Hookwood continues after this. I'm actor Rajim A. Gross. Some of the studios would like to scan our images and only pay us for one day's worth of work and be able to use our likenesses, our voices, our mannerisms as computer-generated characters, not only in the movie that we might be filming in, but in all future films as well. That's not fair. And I thank the SAG board members that are fighting for my rights as an actor to work on a union film. So I just want to say standing in complete solidarity with everyone. Thank you. You are tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the Internet's foremost location for opinion, analysis, and insight on the world of sports. Here now is the man banned from sports trivia contests in 38 states and four Canadian provinces, and not to mention Guam. Your host, K.J. Green. You are back in the Hoodwood. My name is K.J. Green, and let's get to the Week 14 NFL picks. The less we say about Week 13, the better. Six and seven last week. Let's keep the view forward and determine to do much better. 
for your approval, review, and perusal. I present the Week 14 picks with eyes being provided by ESPN Bet for entertainment and comparison purposes only. That means bet at your own risk. I hold no culpability or responsibility if you bet these lines and lose the holiday present money. Now, last week I said that the uh, six teams that were on buys were the last of the buys. I misspoke. The 3-10 Cardinals, who defeated the Steelers 24-10, and the 4-9 Commanders, who lost to the Dolphins 45-15, are the last teams this year to get their respective buys. And for their beleaguered fans, I think that they will be thankful to see other games instead of these woeful squads. Now, all times will be listed as Eastern Standard. Please consult the fine folks at 506sports.com for an excellent, extensive coverage map of the games. But as always, check your local listings for the games and times in your end of the universe. Now, let's get to the games of Sunday, December 10th. This is a CBS doubleheader weekend. First on the docket, we have the 7-5 Colts taking on the 6-6 six six Bengals at Paycor Stadium in Cincinnati. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Bengals are 2.5-point favorites. Last week, the Colts defeated the Titans 31-28, while the Bengals defeated the Jaguars 34-31 in overtime. Fast Fact will be listed at the bottom of the screen this week as I have been trying to find information. And for the people who are listening on the podcast... Just going to have to take a, take an L on this one. Now, the teams are separated by 112 miles, and you would think that this would be the basis of a fierce rivalry based on proximity. But both teams and fan bases have largely ignored each other for the last 40 years, and this game does have some playoff implications to it. Now, the Colts dodged an upset bid by their divisional rivals, and aided by an unexpected ambush by the Bengals of the Jags last Monday, are in the mix for not only the playoff spot, but a divisional crown. Now, the Bengals, for their part, were cheered by the stellar play of Jake Browning and bolstered by a needed boost by their heretofore anemic running game. Tough call here. You never know which team's going to show up on either side. I don't trust the Bengals anymore, to be honest, and think that great game that they played on Monday night was just a glittering mirage. The pick here is Indianapolis. Next on the docket, we have the 5-7 Buccaneers taking on the 6-6 six six Falcons at Mercedes-Benz Stadium in Atlanta, 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Falcons are 2.5-point favorites. Last week, the Buccaneers defeated the Panthers 21-18, while the Falcons defeated the Jets 13-8. Now, the Falcons have managed to get to the head of the woeful NFC South and... If they can knock off the Bucks at home, they strengthen their case for a divisional crown. Now, their offense has been pretty anemic the past couple of weeks, and if this game was in Tampa, I'd give the Bucks a better shot at winning. But the Falcons have played fairly good at home, and that will be the slight difference. The pick here is Atlanta. Next on the docket, we have the 8-4 Jaguars taking on the 7-5 Browns at Brown Stadium in Cleveland, 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Browns are three-point favorites. Last week, the Jaguars lost to the Bengals 34-31 in overtime, while the Browns lost to the Rams 36-19. Now, both teams took unexpected pratfalls last week. The Jags were ambushed by the Bengals on Monday night and now have a hard road turnaround to face a Browns team coming off of two forgettable roadies highlighted by an abysmal performance in L.A. against a middling Rams team. And they look seriously out of whack on both offense and defense. 
Now, if Trevor Lawrence is a no-go with a high ankle sprain, my confidence will not be high in C.J. Beathard against a rough-and-ready Browns defense aching to get some payback against somebody and right their rapidly sinking ship. The pick here is Cleveland. Next on the docket, we have the 7-5 Texans taking on the 4-8 Jets at MetLife Stadium in East Rutherford, New Jersey. 1 p.m. kickoff on CBS. The Texans are 3.5-point favorites. Last week, the Texans defeated the Broncos 22-17, while the Jets lost to the Falcons 13-8. Now, the Texans are firmly in the playoff race in the AFC and very much in contention for the AFC South title. Now, they host a Jets team that has no earthly idea what's going on at quarterback, and that's not a good sign off the rip. C.J. Stroud is playing more and more like a seasoned vet every week, and he will have a good test against a capable Jets secondary. But I can't see the Jets' defense slowing down the Texan run game, and that will be the difference. The pick here is Houston. Next on the docket, we have the 6-6 six six Rams, taking on the 9-3 Ravens at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Ravens are 7.5-point favorites. Last week, the Rams defeated the Browns 36-19, while the Ravens were on their bye. Now, the Rams are feeling themselves after a startling evisceration of the Browns at home, they now fly 27 miles cross-country to face a rested Ravens team on their turf. Now, I like the Rams' offense. Their defense could keep a freewheeling Lamar Jackson honest. But let's keep it a buck, as the kids say. A West Coast team playing an early game on the East Coast is dicey at best. I mean, the Chargers were light years better than the Pats and still struggle playing them in Foxborough in an early game last week. The Rams will have all sorts of trouble here. The pick here is Baltimore. Next on the docket, we have the 9-3 Lions taking on the 4-8 Bears at Soldier Field in Chicago. 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Lions are three-point favorites. Last week, the Lions defeated the Saints 33-28 while the Bears were on their bye. Now, the Lions are feeling froggy after a while winning the Big Easy and now head to the Midway to face a Bears team that won an ugly game in the Twin Cities Monday before last. Now, I'm learning to trust the Lions offense more and more as they can light up a scoreboard quickly. I don't think that they'll let their collective minds wander or their guards down against a Bears team that tested them heavily in their own home crib a couple of weeks ago. I think they'll get a fairly solid win. The pick here is Detroit. Next on the docket is the 1-11 Panthers, taking on the 5-7 Saints at Caesars Superdome at New Orleans, 1 p.m. kickoff on Fox. The Saints are five-point favorites. Last week, the Panthers lost to the Buccaneers 21-18, while the Saints lost to the Lions 33-28. Now, I was looking at Facebook the other day and saw I had a friendversary. Is that a word? Friend? Anniversary? I don't know. I had a friendversary with an old homie from college. Now, the app said I was friends with this guy for 14 years. I've actually known him closer to 30. He's my road dog, and his profile picture is with his road dog, his cute little pooch. Speaking of dogs, the Panthers are pathetic. And when the big boys beat up the little boy, the little boy can't always kick his dog. Now, the Panthers are everyone's dog this year. Now, my friend is a fierce advocate for dog, uh, dogs and dog shelters. And while I'm sure he knows I'm never about kicking or abusing dogs, I think you will understand the allegory and imagery here. Let's take time out, come back with the second half of the NFL picks on late games and primetime games in time. Sports from the Hoodwood continues after this.
You're tuned in to Sports from the Hoodwood, the internet's foremost location for the most honest insight, thorough analysis, and unfiltered opinion in the world of sports. Now, once again, here's the man of the hour, After Hours, your host, KJ Green. Back in the Hoodwood, let's get to the late games on the docket. First up, we have six 6-6 Vikings taking on the 5-7 Raiders at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. 4-05 kickoff on Fox. The Vikings are three-point favorites. Last week, both teams were on their respective buys. Now, the Vikings have had 13 days to stew over a putrid effort at home against the Wobegon Bears. Now, they head to Vegas to face Raiders team that is just as punchless, but this Raiders team actually beat the Bears on the road. So why do the Vikes have a better-than-a-puncher's chance here? Justin Jefferson. He is that guy that can take lids off of defenses. He's coming back off the IR after a lengthy stay. And I think that Josh Dobbs goes to him often. The pick here is Minnesota. Next on the docket, we have the 6-6 six six Seahawks. Taking on the 9-3 49ers at Levi Stadium in Santa Clara, California. 4:05 kickoff on Fox. The 49ers are 11-point favorites. Last week, the 49ers defeated the Eagles 42-19, while the Seahawks lost to the Cowboys 41-35. Now, the Seahawks got blasted by the 49ers on their home turf on Thanksgiving night. They played an entertaining shootout with the Cowboys the very next Thursday, and now head to Frisco to face that same Niners team that is now handing out beatdowns like Halloween candy. Make me a case that the Seahawks can stop a Niners offense brimming with confidence after rolling up on the Eagles. Make me a case that the Seahawks offense can make any traction against a Niners defense that is out to hurt folks. You can't. The pick here is San Francisco. Next on the docket, we have the 6-6 six six Bills taking on the 8-4 Chiefs at GEHA Field at Arrowhead Stadium in Kansas City. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Chiefs are favored by a single point. Last week, the Bills were on their bye, and the Chiefs lost to the Packers 27-19. Now, this was once thought to be a prime marquee matchup. Both teams are not at the peak of their games. Yeah, I know, I know. Josh Allen has found his mojo as of late, and the Chiefs at Arrowhead are not the formidable opponent that they once were. But I have no trust in the Bills to impose their will on anyone. I basically have blown three fantasy league teams waiting for Patrick Mahomes to have that breakout game. Mr. Mahomes, paging Mr. Mahomes, it's now or never. The pick here is Kansas City. Next to the docket, we have the 6-6 six six Broncos. Taking on the 5-7 Chargers at SoFi Stadium in Inglewood, California. 425 kickoff on CBS. The Chargers are 2.5 point favorites. Last week, the Broncos lost to the Texans 22-17, while the Chargers defeated the Patriots 6-0. Now, the Broncos are a tough team to gauge. One week, they look like a defensive juggernaut, and other times, you remember why they gave up 70 points to Miami earlier in the season. The Chargers are even harder to gauge. They scored all of six points last week and still won. I think that was more of a testament of how bad the Patriots are this season than how decent that the Chargers offense could be their potential. I don't know. It's a coin flip game to be honest. I'll go with a team that I don't trust. I don't trust either team to be honest. The pick here is Los Angeles. Next on the docket, 
is the Sunday night game. The 10-2 Eagles taking on the 9-3 Cowboys at AT&T Stadium in Arlington, Texas. 8-20 kickoff on NBC. The Cowboys are 3.5-point favorites. Last week, the Eagles lost to the 49ers 42-19, while the Cowboys defeated the Seahawks 41-35. This is the best game of the week, bar none. The Eagles took an embarrassing beatdown in their own house by the new bully of the NFC in the 49ers and now face a rested Pokes team that is looking to finally get some payback. The Eagles are surprisingly vulnerable in this game. If they lose it, they'll fall into the tie with the Pokes for the NFC East lead. Now, the Eagles have not really been pushed all year, and one wonders what they will do when they have to plant their feet, make a stand, and kick some butt. The Pokes have been a terror at home, to be honest, but something tells me that the Eagles will make a statement here. It's the Niners, not the Pokes, that, are, that they are concerned about. And it's high time that someone exposed Pokes for the fakes that they really are. I'm calling this an upset because the Pokes have been so dominant at home, the Philadelphia Eagles are the Woodward upset of the week. Let's turn to the Monday game, shall we? And... Snuffy, is this right? Oh no, not the Giants on primetime again. Really? Make it stop. The 6-6 six six Packers take on the 4-8 Giants at MetLife Stadium, East Rutherford, New Jersey. 8-15 kickoff on ABC. Keep in mind this is only on ABC, no simulcast with ESPN because there are two games for the Monday Night Bill. Packers are six and a half point favorites. Last week, the Packers defeated the Chiefs 27-19 while the Giants were on their bye. Now, the Packers have pushed their way back into the playoff picture with a rousing win over the defending champ Chiefs, and they head to Gotham to face a G-Man team that, for some reason, keeps getting on primetime TV. Make it make sense. Now, Jordan Love is showing some real promise, and the Packers' defense has been playing capably as of late. Facing a sorry G-Man squad that is still fighting their way with Tommy DeVito is offensively challenged. I don't trust the Giants on primetime as far as I can throw them. Here's Green Bay. Finally on the docket, we have the 4-8 Titans taking on the 9-3 Dolphins at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami Gardens, Florida. 8-15 kickoff on ESPN. just on ESPN only, no simulcast. The Dolphins are 13-point favorites. Last week, the Titans defeated, I beg your pardon, the Titans lost to the Colts. 31-28, while the Dolphins defeated the Commanders 45-15. Titans lost an entertaining game to the Colts. Now head to South Beach to face a Dolphins team that is just looking to hand out beatdowns left and right. They slapped around a Commanders team in the nation's capital, and I see no real reason that the Titans' offense will make headway against a good Dolphins defense. The Dolphins' offense is lighting up scoreboards, and that's not a good team thing with a Titans offense that has finally found their way, even though it was against the Colts. The game's at home. Miami's formidable at home. This is the easy pick to make. But I said that last week about the Cardinals beating uh, the Steelers beating the Cardinals. But that's that doesn't never mind there. The Miami Dolphins are the Hoodwood lock of the week. There you have it. Last week. I was 6-7. and seven. Let's not talk about it. I said it before. Thursday game was correct, but the lock and upset were incorrect. Overall, 121-71, and 11-2 on the locks, 5-8 and eight on the upsets. Let's take our final timeout and come back with the Hoodwood Hot Five. Fat dap, head slap, and the final word from the wood. 
Sports from the Hollywood heads down the home stretch after this. Hi everyone, I'm KJ Green. If you're looking to reach a broad audience of your advertising dollars, you can go to Boy Advertising right here in the Hollywood. If you need to find creators as well, let them direct you to Push content, drive sales, and get results. We seem to increase the ads, let them direct you to Black Lightbender Productions location for no-nonsense commentary, insight, and opinions on the world of sports. Here now live in living color, black by popular demand, your host, KJ Green. Here in the let's finish up strong with the Liquid Out 5, Fat Dab and Head Slap, and the final word from the wood. Now, the Hoodwood Hot 5, we're taking a break from college football. Maybe we thought that was all I was going to do with the Hoodwood Hot 5, but this time we're looking at the silly season in Major League Baseball, which is free agency, where teams are jumping on the players left and right, and some teams are making stupid trades like Juan Soto to the Yankees, which I'm not particularly fond of, but that's neither here nor there. Let's look at the five top free agents, players who are being highly coveted by other teams to make a move. I'm going to start off with number five being Blake Snell, late of the San Diego Padres. Now, Blake Snell picked a hell of a time to win Cy Young, and he is going to look cashing big time. There's a lot of teams that are looking for especially a left-handed pitcher who can eat up innings and throw, have masterful control like Blake Snell has. Will he stay with the Padres, who have been known to throw out some money, but like I said, have made a couple stupid trades, but it'll be interesting to see if Blake Snell jumps to another team. Our number four hot free agent is another pitcher, Aaron Noah, who has played his entire career with the Philadelphia Phillies. He was 90-71 and 71 in his career with the Phillies and has made an all-star team and has uh, one of the MLB records with most consecutive strikeouts in a game. He struck out 10 consecutive batters. And, <coughs> excuse me, cut that up. Nola is a solid pitcher, another one that eats innings, has a very low strikeout, but at 30, you're wondering if teams are going to be willing to try to take a chance on a player who has crossed 30 and has put in a good number of service time. Our number three player is just the opposite, a young player who is just hitting free agency at the right time, Cody Bellinger. Now, that is a player who has won an MVP and has put up just some stupid numbers over the course of his young career. He is looking to cash in, and there will be a lot of teams that would love to use him as a centerpiece, as a center fielder in their outfielder. Now, the number two free agent is probably somebody you have never heard of. That name is probably somebody, unless you're a baseball junkie, Yoshinobu Yamamoto. Now you go, who that? Now it's got to be somebody from Japan, of course, from the Central League. Now you know, players from Nippon, they have put up these crazy, they put up these crazy posting numbers that teams have to pay just to get the rights to negotiate with these players. 
Now, Yamamoto is probably one of the best young pitchers that you've never heard of. But he's put up some sick numbers in the Central League. And he could be that gem of a centerpiece for a, a team's rotation. Now, of course, you got the usual suspects that are after him. The Yankees, the Mets. They're getting into a bidding war. Which team will put up enough cheese to be able to try to sign this player? My guess is probably going to be the Yankees. The Yankees are going to spend crazy money because they finished in last place last year. And, of course, the number one free agent, no real big surprise, Shohei Otani. The Shohei watch continues. The Dodgers said that they talked to him. Will this go against Shohei's stated uh, 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 desire to not publicize who he's going to? And that's made a lot of the media mad because they want to speculate. Who is Shohei going to? Something similar to where was LeBron going? Where his decision was going to be? But Shohei Otani is very media shy. He is not somebody that really likes to publicize himself even though he could be one of the, the first player to make a half a billion dollars in a contract. What team is going to throw that kind of jack at him? I speculated about this a couple of weeks ago. I still said that the Dodgers were the front runner. But with that, that team coming out and saying that he spoke with them, could this be trouble? Could, he get pushed, could the Dodgers get pushed to the back of the list? It would be interesting to see what team... Any of what teams that the, any of these players land on. Now that's my high five. What's yours? Now, Fat Dap and Head Slap of the Week, there are multiple winners of the awards this week. Fat Daps go first to the Baseball Hall of Fame, who is going out of their way to honor the Negro League Museum with an exhibition game featuring Negro League players. Not necessarily Negro League players, but a sort of a styled East versus West All-Star game. Now, that was one of the biggest showcase games of the Negro Leagues in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The last Negro League All-Star game was actually in 1962. But there are going to be a notable number of players of color who are coming out to honor the Negro League Hall of Fame and the Negro League All-Star game. Now, that's a game I would pay a ticket to go see because there are going to be a lot of older players that are big names. It's going to be an exhibition game. You're not going to see sharp, crisp play, but it's going to be good to see the Negro Leagues being honored. Also, Fat Dap goes to Trey Hendrickson of the Bengals, who was quick to assist an injured Trevor Lawrence in their Monday night game in Jacksonville. Lawrence, who suffered a high ankle sprain, went down on, like he was going to limp off the field, then he went down because he was in great pain. Hendrickson of the Bengals, waving to the, to the Jaguar sideline, like, yeah, this guy's hurt, really hurt. But instead of, you know, ignoring him or walking away, knelt down beside him, offered up a quick prayer, and was just close by him to comfort him as the trainers approached. That's a classy move. You don't usually see other players helping, you know, players from other teams. But football's a brotherhood. And when someone gets hurt, it's always quick to see players kneeling down, you know, taking a knee to make sure, you know, to offer condolences and, and prayers up that the player is not hurt. Because they know 
Not for the grace of God, that might be them. So fat dap to Trey Henderson for a classy move. Our head slaps of the week. <laughs> I, I, it, staying with the Jacksonville um, Cincinnati Bengals game on Monday night, Zach Taylor, a coach that I'm not fond of, the coach that I still think is the stupidest coach in the NFL, for reasons that this poor scribe can't fathom, wanted to throw not one, but two different backward or, uh, or receiver option passes. The first one, Jamar Chase threw, completed back to Bengals quarterback Jake Browning for a seven-yard loss. That wasn't as bad as what Tyler Boyd did when he threw a pass in the third quarter of the same game. That pass, he gets the ball, looks around, looks around, and tries to throw the bat ball back over to Joe Mixon. There's one small problem. Josh Allen was standing in the middle of the backfield like he was waiting for a bus. Like, boom. Intercepts the ball and runs it back 10 yards, and the Jags eventually scored off the turnover. Who's the offensive coordinator and, print and, and uh, signal caller and play caller for the Bengals? Hmm, Zach Taylor. Zach Taylor is fast uh, defending his title as the stupidest coach in the NFL for those just lame brain calls. Makes absolutely no sense. Why is this man still coaching? Somebody answer me that. And now without much further ado, let's go to the final word from the wood. It's time. And no, I'm not switching my allegiances, even if my girlfriend is from that area. I'm not jumping to another team. But it's start... Damn it. Try it again. It's time. No, I'm not switching my allegiances, even if my girlfriend is from that area. I'm not jumping to another team. But it's time to start giving the Detroit Lions their due. Now, as a Vikings fan, I used to say, when in doubt, bring the Lions out. They have long been the punching bag of the NFL. Many would yell, no, it's the Cincinnati Bengals, who went 14 long and brutal years without a winning season. Ironically, those Bengals clinched their first division title in 15 years in 2005 in, of all places, Detroit. The Lions have long been a quiet laughing stock of a team. Even in the halcyon days of Barry Sanders, the Lions were not really that good. Even though they were a regular playoff team, making playoffs six of nine years in the 90s, we used to openly question why the Lions always got that Thanksgiving Day game to watch them get pummeled in front of a sullen Motown crowd. This team went 0-16 one year, 2008 and have had five winning seasons, five, since then. Now, they have made playoffs in three of those five winning seasons, winning 10 games in 2011 and 11 in 2014. But after losing in the playoffs, quickly regressed to the mean. When they traded away their uh, franchise quarterback, Matthew Stafford, straight up for Jared Goff in 2021, many felt it was to get Stafford to a team that could win a title. And when he did so, Winning Super Bowl 56 against the Bengals, many Lions fans celebrated feeling that 
this was the closest that they could get to a title with him by proxy. The trade for Goff did end up being a throwaway, though. Uh, in a place that he finally felt where he was wanted, Jared Goff has brought the Lions up and adding solid pieces through drafts and trades under the stewardship of Matt Campbell, this team has quietly rose from laughingstock to bonafide contender. And at the end of the last season, the Lions got a showcase game in Week 17 when most people, I beg your pardon, try that again. At the end of last season, the Lions got a showcase game in Week 18 against their divisional playmates in Green Bay. The Packers looked, looked to finish the season by clobbering their usual punching bag, but the Lions didn't follow script, knocking off the pack 20-16 to finish 9-8 and giving a chilling sneak preview of a team that was quickly shedding its Motor City Kitty moniker. But how would this team respond to being a favorite? Another longtime laughing stock in the New York Jets picked up Aaron Rodgers and looked like they were going to um, be on the rise as a favorite in the AFC. But Rodgers went down with an Achilles heel injury and the Jets have floundered since. The Lions instead, uh, the opposite, have quietly won nine of their first 12 games and sports their best record in 60 years. You heard me right, 6-0. The last time the Lions were this good after 12 games, Kennedy was still in the White House, Lombardi was still coaching the Packers, and Paul Brown was in Cleveland. Can this be a magical year for the Lions? They are trying to get at least two home games in the playoffs, and it's likely they would have to travel to San Francisco or Philly for a shot at the Super Bowl. But it will be good to see long-suffering Lions fans finally see their team play at home in the playoffs for the first time in Ford Field and the first time at home since 1994. They've waited patiently for their shot at the top, and it's long overdue and deserved. And that is the final word from the wood. Coming up in the background, you know that means that your time here in the Hoodwood is just about done, and I thank you so much for your visit. Now, the show's email is kjgreen at sportsfromthehoodwood.com. Please send me emails regarding the show topic, both past and future, questions, comments, and both praise and criticism on the show. I welcome your correspondence, and we'll try to get back to you in a timely manner. Now, the show's website is sportsfromthehoodwood.com. That's back catalog of the show going back 11 years in both audio and video forms. You can check that out if any shows that you may have missed. You can join the debate and conversation on the Sports from the Woodwood page on Facebook. We also have video podcast simulcast, as well as other topics, funny stuff I find on the web, plenty of great sports debate, and lots more. We'll start from there and respond to member posts Now, the video version of the show is on YouTube. Please hit that subscribe and smash those like buttons for more great content. Now, the link to the podcast is also on the show's tribal feed. At Woodwood Sports. As a host of interesting stuff I find there, stuff I find, stuff I like to show, I can send me correspondence and I can correspond back so you can follow there as well. Now, the audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Google Podcast. The audio version is on Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Google Podcasts. ITunes with Apple and a host of other fine podcast platforms and providers. If the Woodwood is not on your favorite, please ask for it. Drop me a line and I will see what I can do to get it there. As always, special thanks to Raven Pictures for continuing 
production assistance and website development. And that is it from the Woodward, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Until next time, fellow sports fans, I'm KJ Green. Sports from the Hoodwood is a Black Bandit Productions and Enterprises presentation of a 551 Audio and Films production.